praised be Jesus Christ. Peace be with you. Today is September the 5th, 2021. I am speaking to you today from a new place, uh, Grass Valley, California. This is uh, in Sacramento Diocese, and it's about three, three and a half maybe hours away from St. Patrick's uh, in Menlo Park. And uh, you may be wondering why I am here in such a place. And the answer is that a priest friend of mine, Father Alex Estrella, is the pastor here at uh, St. Interestingly enough, St. Patrick's Parish here in Grass Valley. So uh, I went from one St. Patrick's to another. But we are enjoying a free weekend uh, this weekend for Labor Day. And so I took the opportunity to uh, step away from the seminary for a couple of days and spend some time with a friend here in his parish. And it's been great so far. I arrived here last night, spent most of Saturday um, hanging out at the seminary, served mass there in the morning and was doing some study, um, getting things squared away for next week. And then, yeah, made the drive out here yesterday, which was pretty nice. I missed most of the traffic and the last hour or so was pretty much country, uh, windy roads, which I always enjoy. And uh, yeah, then arrived here, we went out for dinner, and this this really is a village, kind of. Um, and uh, Father Alex says he's the village priest. I really got to see what that was like, because we walked from the rectory over to this uh, restaurant, Italian restaurant, about half a mile away in uh, downtown, kind of the main street of Grass Valley. And uh, along the way, several people approached him, people who knew him or had just seen him around. People seemed very, very comfortable and very friendly with him. Of course, he's wearing his cassock and everything. And then we're passing by this movie theater and there's this crowd of like middle school age boys outside, like five or six of them. And as we're walking, one of them shouts out, hey, uh, you're, you're the father at my friend's church. <laughs> and so we go over and we start talking to them. And Father Alex asks, well, what are you boys doing? Are you causing trouble out here? No, Father, we want to see a movie, but it sounds like it's not going to work out because we don't have enough money. Well, how much are you short? So he ends up buying movie tickets for all of them. And <laughs> they're all saying, no way, no way. Oh, my gosh. Like they've never seen such a thing before. It was really a, an endearing moment. It was kind of like something out of one of those um, Bing Crosby priest movies, like The Bells of St. Mary's. It, just was a, it seemed like something that you would see on, on TV or hear about in the life of a saint, like St. John Bosco. But not, not, nothing that I've seen like this before in real life anyway. So this is small town clerical life, and it's pretty good. It's... Uh, yeah, I don't know how many families are in this parish, but it seems like everyone knows each other, and uh, it's just a nice community here. Pretty nice church, too. Could do with some renovation. Um, and I think Father has some plans in the not-too-distant future to bring about a renovation of the sanctuary. But uh, he's been here for two years so far, so no really major changes yet. But I can see the... Uh, the imprint that he's beginning to make upon the parish here. There's a lot of altar servers. Uh, they're pretty well trained. And so I served at the high mass this morning. And afterwards I asked them, how many of you guys want to be a priest? And all of them, but one, put their hands up. <laughs> so I said, all right, I learned all their names. 
I said, all right, I'll pray for you guys if you pray for me. So it's a lovely little community here. And uh, it's kind of funny too. There's a street called Church Street, which intersects, it comes to a, a T intersection with Chapel Street, which is where I'm walking right now. And at the end of Church Street, right at this intersection, is St. Patrick's, <laughs> the Catholic Church. And then all along the road, leading up to the Catholic Church are, you know, the Methodists, the Episcopalians, the Unitarian Universalists, whatever, are all further down the road. So it's pretty funny. The road that <laughs> contains all these other churches ends, culminates in the uh, Catholic Church. Pretty great uh, geographical expression of our theological identity. <laughs> and the other churches along the road are pretty beautiful too. The little Episcopalian church is very nice with its red doors. It's one of the oldest churches in, I think in California, at least in this part of California. So, uh, yeah, good to get a little time away uh, before the semester really gets intense. We're two weeks in now, and uh, so far things are, so far so good, you know. Um, classes are beginning to ramp up, but I've been able to so far stay ahead of all the readings and on top of the various assignments. But uh, yeah, on our calendar coming up, we have our annual gala, which is in two, two weeks from now. So right now, the seminary is gearing up for that. I think my vocation director, Father Jeff, is going to come down for that. Um, and there's many bishops who come and priests who come and all of our major benefactors come. So we throw this dinner for them. And there's a silent auction and there's, you know, entertainment. and It's all a big, it's, it's our, our biggest fundraiser um, for the seminary. So that's a big event coming up around the corner. And yeah, other than that, just continuing on with classes and uh, with our regular formation program. So that's about that all, all that I have to share that's new this week. I hope that you all uh, have had a good week. And uh, yeah, it doesn't, in Menlo Park, we're beginning to feel the beginnings of fall. The temperature has definitely been dropping and the days are getting shorter. Here in Grass Valley, um, it's currently at around 90 degrees, so it doesn't really feel like fall's coming. <laughs> but uh, yeah, back at St. Pat's, definitely, we're starting to feel the shift. All right, so enough about that. Let's jump over and talk for a little while here about J.R.R. Tolkien and this week's readings from the Unfinished Tales. I take one more step, it'll be the farthest away from home I've ever been. Fool of a took! Throw yourself in next time and rid us of your stupidity. So this week in the Unfinished Tales, the reading that was uh, assigned for us in the project Tolkien 2021 project is, let me see, I think it's called The Line of Elros. Is that right? Um, let me pull it up here on Kindle. I know we are still in the second age. Uh, yeah, The Line of Elros, Kings of Numenor. 
So this was, as I expected, it's pretty much a genealogy. There's nothing here that's really surprising. Um, it tells the history of Numenor from the first king, which is Tarminyatur, all the way to the last king, Arpharazon. And so pretty much we know the arc of history, we know what's happening, especially um, that period with Tarmineldur, which we read about last week, and Tar Aldarion, um, in the story Aldarion and Arendus, the mariner's wife. So uh, we know the arc of the history of Numenor, so I'm not going to get too much into this chapter. But, you know, what is striking is that uh, Tolkien, uh, with such precision and care, has created the entire history of this people from their foundations until their destruction. And we get to trace, as we read through the lives of these kings and queens, it's very realistic, the genealogy. Some of them we know almost nothing about, except their names and the years that they reigned, or lived, or both. But some of them we know a great deal about their lives and their policies and uh, the way that they ruled Numenor for good or for ill, mostly for ill in the latter days. Um, so it's just, it's, it has a real verisimilitude, you know, it has the, uh, the air of truth about it. And I think that's one of Tolkien's greatest strengths that we've seen as he's developed this legendarium. He really has the ability to create something that has the ring of truth that seems like true history, um, even though it's invented. And that's, of course, like we've already talked about several times before, that's the real work of sub-creation. You create a world that, that the mind can enter into. Um, and we talk nowadays about the suspension of disbelief, um, which I think comes at it from a little bit of a different angle than Tolkien would describe it. Because the idea with sub-creation is not so much the suspension of disbelief, it's that the world invites you to believe. <laughs> it invites you to come into it and to explore, and it's a world that's sort of big enough, broad enough, deep enough that the mind which goes into it can find its rest there. It can, it, you have the sense you can just keep exploring, you can look into all these little details, you know? Um, like the, the reigns of these kings and queens who we know nothing about. What happened during those years? What was Numenor like? What was going on? You know, and so by tracing out this history, and le I think it's, it's an intentional artistic choice, leaving some parts um, undeveloped and other parts uh, fleshed out in great detail, that also contributes to the feeling of real history. Because if you look back into especially ancient history, you will find there are some periods you know a lot about, because often just because someone happened to write you know, a record during those times or something, and other periods we know almost nothing. Um, you know, we, I, I have a class in liturgical theology, and we've been going through the history of the Roman breviary and the divine office. And so, yeah, um, <laughs> there's an important document that tells us about what the divine office, the liturgy of the hours, was like in Jerusalem in, I think, the fourth uh, century or something like that. And we only have that because it must have been a little bit later. I'm not sure exactly when now. But anyway, we only know that, we only have this document because a certain Spanish nun named Egeria went on a pilgrimage and she kept a journal, a very, very detailed journal, a travelogue of everywhere she went. And so in her journal, she wrote down all these details about what the prayer was like in Jerusalem and how they celebrated the offices. And so because uh, just this one Spanish nun happens to be very painstakingly detailed in her travel journal, what would have been her blog nowadays. We know what the office was like in Jerusalem. 
but we have very little details, for example, about what it was like in the northern part of Egypt, um, in the Pacomian monasteries, you know, and so on. So some things we just have to guess at, we know the outlines, other things we have in great detail. So I just want to mention that because Tolkien, of course, as a scholar, um, I'm going to go a different route here so I can avoid this busy road. I have no idea where I'm going. I'm just wandering blindly around Grass Valley. <laughs> anyway, um, Tolkien, yeah, as a scholar of, of ancient literature and ancient languages, would have known very well this uh, peculiar um, aspect of real history. Some areas we can go very deep. Other areas we just have, we just very lightly brush the surface of what it might have been like. But there's something inviting in that for our, our readers, you know, um, to sort of want to dive into those depths to fill in those gaps ourselves. So that's about all that I have to say about that particular chapter. But uh, let me take a quick look here at the letters because uh, I haven't spoken about them in several weeks. So let me see. There must be some new things here that I haven't had a chance to talk about yet. Where's my most recent highlight? Trying to uh, track down here. Hmm. Well, of course, now I'm realizing that all my most recent highlights were done on my Kindle. And I don't think the Kindle has synced yet with the uh, Amazon cloud. So <laughs> that's uh, unfortunate because now I don't think I have my most recent highlights here on my phone. Let me see. I'm just going to scroll through real quick and see if anything catches my eye. There's this one quote from Tolkien I might have spoken about before, but this is in letter 213, I believe. He says, I am in fact a hobbit in all but size. I like gardens, trees, and unmechanized farmlands. I smoke a pipe and like good plain food, unrefrigerated, but detest French cooking. <laughs> I like and even dare to wear in these dull days mental waistcoats. I am fond of mushrooms out of a field, have a very simple sense of humor, which even my appreciative critics find tiresome. I go to bed late and get up late when possible. I do not travel much. <laughs> oh, I love that. This is not the only place where Tolkien refers to himself as a hobbit, by the way. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> I particularly like that description of himself. You, you really get a sense of who the man is from these sorts of little details in his letters. There's a, a couple of funny exchanges that are here in these letters in the early 200s. Um, this is this is during his last, pretty much his last decade of life, his last 10-15 years. And uh, so we get some correspondence that he's receiving in his, in his retirement. There's a funny one here, number 218, from Eric Rogers. He wrote this letter which was addressed to any professor of English language at Oxford. And eventually they forwarded it on to Tolkien. And he's asking the question, whether it is correct to say a number of office walls has been damaged, or if you should say, a number of office walls have been damaged. Such a, 
<laughs> Ridiculous question. Anyway, so Tolkien responds, Dear Sir, Your letter has eventually reached me, though I am not any professor of English language since I have now retired. The answer is that you can say what you like. <laughs> Pedantry insists that since number is a singular noun, the verb should be singular, that is, has. Uh, common sense feels that since the walls is plural and are really concerned, the verb should be plural, have. You may take your choice. You are sincerely J.R.R. Tolkien. <laughs> There's also, the following letter is pretty good. A Cambridge cat breeder had asked if she could register a litter of Siamese kittens under names taken from the Lord of the Rings. Tolkien replies, <laughs> My only comment is that of Puck upon mortals. I fear that to me Siamese cats belong to the fauna of Mordor. <laughs> but you need not tell the cat breeder that. <laughs> it's fantastic. And then, yeah, much of the following letters here are dealing with his continued work translating Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and also this poem, um, The Pearl, which I've never read before, but Tolkien at least seems to believe that they're by the same author, so he's translating them both together. Um, and he's also working on, at the request of one of his aunts, he's working on this project of publishing The Adventures of Tom Bombadil and some of his other older poems together, which eventually Alan and Unwin came out with. I think we'll be reading those uh, in October or November, sometime coming up soon. So he's working on some various publications here in his retirement. Um, and uh, he writes that he's living off of the profits from the Lord of the Rings so far. Um, at one point in a letter to his aunt, see if I can track this one down here. This was around 240, I think. Um, he had sent her a check. I think that she she must have had some medical issues or something. And so, yeah, here we are, 238. He sent her an, a check, and then she heard that his wife, Edith, her health was really declining. She had serious arthritis. And I suppose the aunt, whose name is Jane, she must have thought that Edith would have needed a wheelchair. So she offered to send the check back. Tolkien says... As for your noble and self-sacrificing suggestion, cash the check, please, and spend it. One cannot attach conditions to a gift, but I should be best pleased if it was spent soon and on yourself. It is a very small sum, taken only from my present abundance over and above the needs of Edith and myself and of my children. Edith happily does not need a chair, and I could give her one if she did. It is an astonishing situation, and I hope I am sufficiently grateful to God. Only a little while ago, I was wondering if we should be able to go on living here on my inadequate pension. I have never been able to give before, and I have received unrepayable gifts in the past. Uh, all this, he says, simply to assure you that the little gift was a personal pleasure, hardly worthy of much thanks. Also to assure you that I can help more if needed. Saving universal catastrophe, I am not likely to be hard up again in my time. This is the advice of a very shrewd old publisher, <laughs> Unwin. Also, I gather, he says, that he told Edmund Fuller that my books were the most important and also the most profitable thing that he had published in a long life, and that they would certainly remain so after his time and his son's time. And then, parenthetically, Tolkien says, this is just for you. It is unwise to advertise to advertise, still more to boast of good fortune, as all fairy stories teach. So say not. 
I do not want to wake up one morning and find it all a dream. So Tolkien is doing quite well now, living off of the proceeds from The Lord of the Rings. And uh, he seems to be uh, under the impression from his publishers, at least, who are certainly raking in the cash at this point. This is the 19, beginning of the 1960s. Lord of the Rings is taking off as a phenomenon. So he's under the impression now from his publishers that he'll never have to, to worry about money again. Uh, and good for him. That's great. Now, I also wanted to mention here in letter 241, he talks a little bit about Leaf by Niggle, which we read months ago now. It seems a very long time ago. But he talks a little bit about the significance of the tree and, of course, avoiding any kind of allegory. He mentions, uh, uh, where was this now? A certain, a certain point in his life, he lived at a place where there was a great tree, he says, a huge poplar with vast limbs, visible through my window even as I lay in bed. I loved it and was anxious about it. It had been savagely mutilated some years before, but had gallantly grown new limbs, though of course not with the unblemished grace of its former natural self. And now a foolish neighbor was agitating to have it felled. Every tree has its enemy. Few have an advocate. Interesting line there. Tolkien has mentioned before how much he loves trees, and many of his characters have a great love for trees, so it's an interesting character trait about him. He goes on to add, Too often the hate is irrational, a fear of anything large and alive, and not easily tamed or destroyed, though it may clothe itself in pseudo-rational terms. So this fool, <laughs> the neighbor, said that it cut off the sun from her house and garden, and that she feared for her house if it should crash in a high wind. Now it stood due east of her front door, across a wide road, at a distance nearly thrice its total height. <laughs> Thus, only about the equinox would it even cast a shadow in her direction, and only in the very early morning, one that reached across the road to the pavement outside her front gate. And any wind that could have uprooted it and hurled it on her house would have demolished her and her house without any assistance from the tree. I believe it still stands where it did, though many winds have blown since. Then he goes on to say, um, this is about his inspiration for Leaf by Niggle, also, of course, I was anxious about my own internal tree, the Lord of the Rings. It was growing out of hand and revealing endless new vistas, and I wanted to finish it, but the world was threatening, and I was dead stuck somewhere about chapter 10. So, uh, this is interesting just in terms of background, right, for Tolkien, but he does go on to say at the end of this letter, uh, but none of that really illuminates Leaf by Niggle much, does it? If it has any virtues, they remain as such, whether you know all this or do not. I hope you think it has some virtue, but for quite different reasons I think you may like the personal details. That is because you are a deer and take an interest in other people, especially, as rightly, your kin. So just interesting little highlights here. Of course, Tolkien is always quite resistant when people are asking him for biographical details to illuminate some part of his work, and he, he says as much, I think, earlier in this same letter. But to his dear aunt, he's willing to share a little bit about uh, his, his sources of inspiration somewhere deep in the leaf mold of his mind and his personal history here. And one more little uh, anecdote I want to share here. This is from letter 232. I'm just kind of jumping around. But this is funny about his aunt. He says, I always like shrewd, sound-hearted maiden aunts. <laughs> Blessed are those who have them or meet them. Though they are commoner in my experience than Saki aunts, and I think that's, that's a reference I don't get. I don't know what that is. 
but he goes on to say, The professional aunt is a fairly recent development, perhaps, <laughs> but I was fortunate in having an early example. One of the first women to take a science degree. She is now 90, but only a few years ago went botanizing in Switzerland. And of course, this is the aunt he was writing to in that other letter, the one who encouraged him to publish all of his poems together in one collection. So he says, it was in her company, with a mixed party of about the same size as the company in The Hobbit, that I journeyed on foot with a heavy pack through much of Switzerland and over many high passes. It was approaching the Aletsch that we were nearly destroyed by boulders loosened in the sun, rolling down a snow slope. An enormous rock, in fact, passed between me and the next in front. That and the thunder battle, a bad night in which we lost our way and slept in a cattle shed, appear in The Hobbit. It is long ago now. So Tolkien has really lived a very interesting life. <laughs> Sometimes we get a sense of him just as a, a bookish academic, an Oxford Don who just lives a quiet, inoffensive life in his rooms and writes these novels. But, you know, to be able to write something as exciting and engaging, full of adventure and, and uh, risk and romance as The Lord of the Rings, one must have lived quite an exciting life, right? Full of all those things uh, oneself. And Tolkien certainly did from his time in the British Army, you know, and the, at the Battle of the Somme, and these botanizing trips in Switzerland, and goodness knows what else. He's lived a life truly full of adventure. So we shouldn't have too, uh, too Hobbit-like a picture of him, despite what he may protest to the contrary. So anyway, this is a pretty light week for Tolkien reading. I don't have much more to, to share here. But uh, next week, I believe we're going to hear the story of Galadriel and Celeborn, which I'm very interested in. Because, you know, they turn up in the Silmarillion and they turn up in the Lord of the Rings. They play a very important role, especially Galadriel in the Lord of the Rings. So they've been there from basically the beginning all the way through to the Third Age, all the way through the, the adventures of Frodo and the Fellowship. So I'm interested to hear their story and what exactly they were doing in all those years that lie between the War of Wrath, you know, and then the Fellowship of the Ring. So this next week, we're going to hear some of those answers, and I look forward to sharing them with you next Sunday. Now, I'm going to take a quick pause here while I get over to a quieter street, and then I'll share with you a little bit on the topic of theology. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Open your hearts, open up your hearts to Christ. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. By the way, I want to apologize if the audio quality today is not quite as good as it usually is. I thought I had brought my iPad with me, which I can use to edit the podcast, but I discovered I actually left it back at the seminary. My laptop also is back there. So I'm going to try tonight to edit and post this on my iPhone, <laughs> which uh, mm, I think I will be able to do it. But whether I'll be able to do it well up to the quality that I usually do is another question. So if you notice that the sound isn't quite as good or the transitions are not quite as smooth, then you'll know why. It's because I'm trying to do this with my fingers, <laughs> which I usually do with a mouse and with much finer control um, on GarageBand. Anyway, in the theology segment today, I thought I would talk a little bit about something we've been studying in one of my classes, which is basically, um, what does it mean? 
that we belong to the Roman right, as opposed to, say, the Coptic right, the Ethiopian right, the Byzantine right, the Russian, the Greek right, and so on. What does it mean that we are Romans, and uh, for us that we're becoming priests in the Roman right, but for all of us that we are Roman Catholics who belong to the Roman or the Latin right of the church. So what is a right? Well, a right is a complex reality, but basically um, you could say it's a, it's a whole set of prayers and styles of praying, of ceremonies, and a whole kind of liturgical praxis um, that's been handed down from antiquity. So it's something that's handed on, that's tradition, it's not invented out of whole cloth, and it arises organically, so it's not manufactured. But how does a rite come to be? This is something that St. John Paul the Great, John Paul II, uh, isn't it a little rude to call him the Great as if John Paul I wasn't all that good? <laughs> anyway, St. John Paul II spoke about this in one of his encyclicals. He wrote this, I think it was an encyclical letter on the church in Eastern Europe and Saints Cyril and Methodius. I forget what it was called. But anyway, he wrote on this topic of how does a rite come to be? And basically, it's the process of what he calls authentic enculturation. Now, there's something which is called enculturation, which is, which is inauthentic. <laughs> so we should be cautious of that. There are people in the church today who speak about enculturation, for example, meaning that they wish to um, remove or alter essential elements of the rite and replace them with others which they think would speak more effectively to this or that culture. Now that's obviously not organic development, that's manufacture, that's putting yourself as the master of the liturgy, not being its servant. So that's not what John Paul II means when he speaks about enculturation. For him, enculturation, excuse me, I'm walking up a really steep hill here, so I'm running out of breath. But uh, enculturation for JP2 is the organic process by which a culture is converted to Christ. So it goes like this. The apostle comes, he preaches the gospel. After the initial proclamation of the gospel, the culture either accepts it or rejects it. And if the culture accepts the gospel, then what begins to happen is that as the gospel radiates throughout the culture and people are converting and believing it, slowly, 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 the gospel pushes out those things in the culture that are opposed to it, that are inimical and incompatible with the gospel. So this would be things like, if we think about ancient cultures, um, you know, human sacrifice, um, unjust imprisonment without due due process of law, you know, injustices that a society might have accepted um, in the past, those are pushed out by the gospel. So the society is purified by it. And then what happens is the unique cultural forms of that people, those things which are not in themselves contrary to the gospel, they kind of get taken over by the gospel. 
So the forms often endure, or they might be changed in some way over, over years and over centuries, but basically they endure. What's different is the content that they might have once expressed, which might have been something merely natural or secular or something even pagan. Now the, they've been emptied out and they've been refilled with the truth of the gospel. And so they become vehicles to express the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, which is pretty cool. So a couple examples. I mean, um, in China, so uh, Saint uh, Blessed, I think, Matteo Ricci was sent to China. He was one of those early Jesuit missionaries like Francis Xavier and, you know, all those guys. The difference was that many of them went to Japan or India or whatnot. In China, the missions didn't really succeed because Matteo Ricci, he was uh, very attuned to the possibility of authentic enculturation. So he realized that soon after arriving that the Chinese held ancestor worship, you know, as a very important part of their culture and their religion. Uh, and so he began to teach them, you know, we have a doctrine that's similar to your ancestor worship. We believe in the communion of saints. And so whereas you will leave, pray, you know, pray to and leave sacrifices for your deceased parents and grandparents, well, we believe that uh, those who have believed in the gospel of Christ, they do live forever. They live in union with Jesus and we can ask them to pray for us. And they're in heaven already adoring the Lord where we will hope to be one day joined with them again. You know what I mean? So he took this cultural form they already had. He emptied it out of what was pagan, what was contrary to the gospel, but what was good in it, he preserved and redeemed. And he used that as a way to, uh, you know, uh, basically attract the Chinese to the gospel, right? Now, back in Europe, people got wind of this and they were saying, whoa, 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 that's, whoa, that's crazy, that's way too far. And they kind of shut him down. And so hundreds of years later, Pius Twelfth actually ruled on Matteo Ricci and he said what he was doing was totally right. He said this was completely consonant with the gospel. But because uh, others had shut it down, the missions in China never really succeeded. If they had succeeded, what we would have today would be basically an Asian or a Chinese rite, which would express the gospel truth in the cultural forms unique to the Asian, Pan-Asian peoples and to the Chinese especially. Much like we have the Byzantine rites with the Greeks and the Russians and the Coptic rites and the Ethiopian rites and so on, you know, from all these ancient peoples who were evangelized by the gospel. But that didn't really take off in China. It did take off in Rome through the preaching of Saints Peter and Paul, our holy fathers among the saints. And so what we have to recognize is that we who belong to the Roman rite, um, we... <laughs> Let me, let me put it this way, because this is the way that my professor, Father McManus, said it. We're not part of the American rite, or the Mexican rite, or the Filipino rite. We're part of the Roman rite. So uh, we belong to the, to the church, which has its roots in Rome. And the way that we worship, the way that we pray, even the way that we think about and speak to God, um, is all deeply informed by Roman culture. And what's unique about Roman culture? Well, one thing 
that we can see very clearly. Once we recognize that this is Roman, we see, wow, this influences a lot of our language and our imagery. Um, Father McManus makes the case that basically the heart of Roman culture is the Aeneid, Virgil's Aeneid. And if you remember, if you've studied your Virgil, in the beginning of the Aeneid, what do we get? We get um, Aeneas fleeing from the burning ruins of Troy with Anchises, his father, upon his, sh upon his shoulders and his little son, what's his, Patroclus, or what's his name, I don't know, I forget, running beside him as they flee from the city. And they go and they found Rome. And so Rome is basically built upon this father-son relationship where the son is obedient to his father and he goes through many sufferings and he ends up founding this great city and it's the inheritor of all that was good that came before it and it becomes this beacon of light in the whole ancient world. So, how does Rome receive the gospel? Well, basically, they, their, um, their existing cultural matrix, their cultural shape, gets emptied out of what's pagan and filled up with the gospel truth. So if you think the matrix of the Aeneid <laughs> basically gets emptied out, and what do we get? Well, Jesus Christ is obedient to his Father. He suffers many things, um, even unto death, in order to found the church, which becomes this great city, a kind of a city upon a hill, which is a light to the whole world, and which uh, is supposed to shine out to all the nations as a beacon of right living and of culture, so that all peoples may become a part of it and may be enlightened. That's very Roman, deeply, deeply Roman. And other things too, we, we're, we're just kind of getting off the ground with this class, but we talked about, for example, um, the sign of peace and where it is in the Roman rite of Mass. Uh, you, you, if, you're, if you are a regular Mass goer, you'll remember what happens. Well, the Eucharistic prayer concludes, and we have the Our Father, this great prayer that Christ himself taught us. Then Christ gives us his peace, uh, my peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you. And then comes the command from the deacon, offer to one another the sign of peace. Now, this is a Roman cultural thing. <laughs> uh, once a contract basically is sealed or a covenant is ratified, then the ones who have you know, entered into the covenant, the contract, will give one another the sign of peace. And that's sealing the contract, basically. So we have entered into the covenant of Christ and the Father. We have offered ourselves up along with Jesus to his Father uh, as living sacrifices to go through many sufferings in obedience to him and thereby to contribute to building up the church, building up the city, to do our civic duty, if you want, <laughs> as members of the church. And uh, all of this, it's all, it's all a part of it. And so we've entered into that with Jesus and now, we turn to one another and we give the sign of peace, thereby ratifying and sealing the covenant. That's Roman. You don't find that in the other rites. You don't find that in the Byzantines, for example. Their rite is a different expression of the gospel through a different lens, a different cultural matrix, which is also very beautiful and unique. Each of these rites are unique. But what's important to grasp about this, I think, is that the gospel as we've received it the right that's been handed on to us, and the way that we pray and that we worship, it is deeply Roman. So Father McManus makes the case very compellingly. Since we're going to be Roman priests, we must know what it means to pray and to worship and to live in a certain respect as a Roman does. And he also makes the case 
But we must know Latin, because Latin is our sole language. It's the, it's the language of our right in which these truths have been passed down to us through many generations, uh, for centuries and centuries. And so, yeah, just good for us to recognize sometimes as Americans that uh, we're not the center of the church. We are not the origins of this faith. It's come down to us in a specific form. Um, at the gospel, which of course comes from the Holy Land, from Judah, as it was received in Rome, and then radiated out through the whole world. Because like the Roman Empire too, this is interesting. If you know about the Roman Empire, you know that wherever they went, they sort of incorporated, integrated into themselves all that was good about the peoples that they, well, conquered really, and the lands that they took for their own. So they didn't just come and wipe out the local culture and establish Romanitas. Rather, they absorbed what was good in the local culture and made it a part of Romanitas, of Romanism. <laughs> you know, and they took the treasures back to Rome. Uh, Rome famously was capable of incorporating everything from their conquered nations, you know, their, their vassal states whether it's art or food or language, even religion. Um, they would famously adopt the other gods of other tribes and just make them part of the Roman pantheon, you know? So that's part of the genius of the Roman rite, too. That's why, for example, the Byzantine rite, beautiful as it is, uh, has not conquered the world in the way that the Roman rite has, such that now, whether you are a Catholic in Tokyo or Los Angeles or London, or, you know, Munich, or what have you, you are likely to worship in the Roman rite. Now, it'll look a little different. It might be in a different vernacular language, depending on where you are. But essentially, the rite through and through is Roman. It's suffused with Romanitas. So I just find that interesting and also very compelling um, because it tells us the story of who we are and where we come from. And so it's not an accident that we worship you know, in certain ways. And um, we need to have a great deal of reverence for our right as it's been handed on to us. And whether we're, we're talking about the extraordinary form, you know, the pre-Vatican II form of the Mass or the, the ordinary form, which has had significant changes, but it's still essentially Roman. So whatever we're talking about, we need to have a great deal of reverence for the right as it's been given to us by our forefathers and as it's been handed down from ancient times to our own particular time and place today. You know, we're part of this living tradition, this living transmission of the faith. And it's pretty incredible to me whenever I think that the Roman Empire, with all of its faults and all of its glory, which, uh, you know, existed 2,000 years ago, lives on today in very significant real ways within the Roman rite of the Catholic Church. Such that, I mean, here in the USA, <laughs> we have dioceses, which is a Roman unit of governance. And we celebrate the Mass in these Roman cultural forms. It's, it's, it's amazing. You know, and so um, this is the way that the Lord operates. He, even with us, you know, we have the principle that grace builds on nature. Grace doesn't come in like a foreign invading army and just crush everything to the ground and build something new. So when we receive God's grace, um, He doesn't come in and rebuild us from nothing and make us something totally different. Grace builds on nature. Grace perfects what's already there that's good. 
Yes, it drives out what's evil, but it perfects what's already good. And so what we become under the influence of grace is a perfected version of ourselves. We become, in fact, more ourselves. This is true also of cultures um, that receive the gospel. They become perfected. And what's already good in them is preserved and, and brought out more clearly. And so it is good that we are the Roman rite. And we, we can be proud in a healthy way uh, of our Romanitas, <laughs> of preserving and living out in our own day what was good of uh, the Roman people um, who received the gospel and converted with joy. So friends, that's all that I have to share with you today. I think this is a fairly short podcast, but uh, I am getting pretty thirsty (laughs) walking out here in the heat. And um, I've happened upon this little nature path, which is very nice. Not sure where it's leading, but I'm going to have to find my way back to the church here soon to get a drink. So (laughs) I pray you have a wonderful Sunday, wherever you are and whatever you're doing. May Almighty God bless you, protect you from all evil, and bring you to everlasting life. Um, talk to you next week. Uh-huh.